Welcome to the Procedures Podcast. I'm Mike Noonan and we have Professor Mark Fitzgerald with us today, the Director of the Trauma Service at the Alfred Hospital and we're going to talk about an interesting procedure. We're going to talk about the pericardial decompression or otherwise known as the thoracotomy. And welcome Mark. Hello Mike. This is a procedure that obviously I think many people in the critical care environment have actually seen or thought about doing before. And I suppose the first question I'd have is where do you see this procedure indicated? So there's a lot of change in the trauma demographics. This is a long-winded answer, by the way. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. But it's important to set the scene because what happened up until really the turn of the century and the early part of this century, uh, resuscitative thoracotomy was done for a number of reasons. There was a high incidence of penetrating trauma. People worried particularly about uh, cardiac injury that was potentially survivable. It was the only way you could actually uh, see what was happening inside the chest. And there were the occasional survivors. So that was the context in the way resuscitative thoracotomy was employed. And then in about uh, 1998, the American College of Surgeons introduced sonographic screening, which was originally aimed at abdominal sonography. But people found it immediately uh, useful for looking at the pericardium and the pleural spaces. And so by the early part of the 2000s, we started seeing reports of thoracotomy being done, particularly in blunt but also penetrating trauma patients post-sonographic demonstration of pericardial tamponade. And so the whole thing changed. Rather than becoming, let's see what's going on, maybe there's something we can do, it became, we know the person's got pericardial tamponade, they're not stable enough to get the operating room, we have to decompress the pericardium now. And also there was a better understanding of acute pericardial tamponade because the original descriptions of pericardial tamponade and needle aspiration were in the middle part of the 20th century. And as you know, and you've seen it in the trauma patients here, people do develop pericardial tamponade sometimes five, seven days post-injury. And it's hemolyzed. And you can aspirate this with a pigtail catheter and it doesn't need open decompression. Normally there's, there's a small rent or cause for it and it doesn't need operative intervention as well. It just needs aspiration. And that's where needle decompression of the pericardium was popularised, but as an acute resuscitative manoeuvre in the shocked person who's hemodynamic compromised, who's got clotted blood in their pericardium, it's not necessarily a procedure that's going to work for you. And I think that's important to bring out at this point is, uh, is that difference between needle decompression and, and open decompression, which we're going to cover both of those in the course, but certainly we're really talking about an open decompression in really a trauma population in our organisation, we have fairly clear indications and guidelines for that. Could you just step us through those briefly, Mark, yep. and the, the background to that? So we train the emergency physicians, actually, in resuscitative thoracotomy. And the indications are, one, obviously, the procedure's indicated. So if you've got someone with an unsurvivable head injury, you may not be doing anything. That's uncommon. Secondly, that they've got pericardial tamponade on ultrasound. And usually you can see that sometimes it's difficult to see for two reasons. One is there's surgical emphysema associated with chest injuries. And the second thing is sometimes, but rarely, people can have tension pericardium, uh, which would be difficult to, to visualise. But the majority of patients have got either from blunt or penetrating trauma evidence not only of fluid in the pericardium but of right ventricular collapse. So that's the first thing they've got on ultrasound. And secondly, they've got evidence of significant hemodynamic compromise. When we've measured this at our institution, 
if someone has got pericardial tamponade and they need to get the operating room, this is about 10 years ago, it would take on average about 50 minutes from the time that diagnosis was made to when the knife was slicing the skin open, which is quite a long delay for someone who's on the cusp. So the majority of our emergency thoracotomies are still done on the operating room, but there's this group of patients, and we use the blood pressure of 70 as a cutoff, and you know, I don't know whether the blood pressure should be 62 or whether it should be 71 or whatever, but we use 70 because we know people are on the slippery slope of the Starling curve then, and because of the intrapericardial pressure that's generating, we know that they're sort of on the cusp. And if you can't get their blood pressure up with pleural decompression and uh, fluid infusion, and they've got pericardial tamponade on ultrasound, then we want the pericardium to be open surgically, evacuated, the bleeding then usually digitally controlled. So there's obviously those main indications for it. Are there any other more nuanced indications that might be not so clear in that in, in that guideline? And I'm thinking things like if there's other thoracic trauma, if you think there's a lung hyalur injury, if you think there's massive hemothorax, do those things sometimes indicate doing this procedure or would you fairly strictly sit to those, uh, those indications? Mm. Well, I mean, it's a good question. So the there's several reasons why you do a resuscitative thoracotomy. The inarguable one is someone with pericardial tamponade demonstrated on ultrasound where you can't get the blood pressure up above 70 and the person's crashing and you have to get control. Then you know, occasionally we'll see people with massive hemothorax, people with penetrating thoracic injury that don't have pericardial tamponade. There are other indications for it. But the advantage of the first indication is usually when the pericardium's open, the source of the bleeding is relatively easy to control for the emergency physician. Other cases they can usually control with packing and such like, but those cases are relatively uncommon and require a little bit of additional surgical training. So there are other indications for it. What we tend not to do at this institution, I must emphasise, is we don't use thoracotomy for proximal aortic occlusion because we don't think there's any evidence that improves the outcome of the patient. So it's, it's a good thing to be aware of because it is obviously a procedure that you don't want people undertaking without adequate support for what they're doing. Obviously, we also have backup here of a cardiothoracic service and yep. a nearby trauma surgeon and, and trauma theatre that's open. If this was to occur in settings outside of a trauma hospital as we are, then where would you see those indications changing potentially? Well, I don't think the indication changes. If you've got someone who's got unresolved, severe circuitry compromise and they've got, if you've got ultrasound, demonstrable pericardial tamponade, you have to do something about it. Now, some people will still elect to use needle decompression, which may or may not work, and it's got its own risks. You know, may not be able to aspirate. You may go into clot. You may actually lacerate the lung or the LAD or equivalent and cause an injury in itself. So it's, it's, it's not an easy procedure to perform, but you do need some surgical skills. And what happens, as you know, is people get very excited about this sort of thing. Using these strict indications here, we do this maybe every two months. You know, last year we had more than 1,300 severely injured patients on the IRS rating system so severe trauma coming into this institution. So this is a very large blunt trauma institution and we do a, a resuscitative thoracotomy maybe four to six times a year and at least a third of the time it's for penetrating trauma, which is an indication worldwide. You know, someone's got a stab wound in the box and they're crashing, well, then you're going to have to open their chest. Uh, but for blunt trauma, 
without those indications, and there was a good study done about 15 years ago and published, the survival rate out of 300-odd patients having recessive thoracotomy for blunt trauma, there was one good functional survive and two other dependent. So it's uh, less than 1%. So using ultrasound helps you be very specific about it. So what happens is there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of things happening to the patient. You know, the patient's being intubated, they might be getting presses, uh, people are focusing on their task, getting IV access, and then usually at least two procedures or procedures with a, a nurse assistant uh, opens the chest we use a left anterolateral thoracotomy approach. Uh, you use an incision that sort of runs down the, the rib space almost onto the bed. You then use some Mayo scissors to open up the pleural space. Uh, you insert finichetto retractors. You spread the ribs. You identify the pericardium. Even when full of blood, sometimes the pericardium doesn't look like it's full of blood. It can be quite opaque sometimes. So once you do the thoracotomy, you have to open the pericardium can be a real mistake to look at it and think, I can't see any blood there, it's fine. And so you open the pericardium anterior to the phrenic nerve, which you can usually visualise. They do it in a longitudinal fashion, so in a keflad caudal direction. And then, usually if there's blood, you know, the blood will decompress itself. And then you're left with the exposed heart. Most of the time, the, you know, obviously the patient hasn't arrested, and there's the heart. Now, when you're doing all this, as I said, people are doing a whole lot of things, and the assistant with you can be very excited. I mean, I've had a scalpel go through the back of two sets of gloves over from the left hand and then told post-proceeds that the patient was hep C positive, which didn't turn out to be the case, but it, it does give you some food for thought. It definitely highlights <laughs> an issue. Yeah. So it's, you have to protect yourself when you're doing these procedures. And then once you've decompressed the pericardium, then you just stop. So, as you correctly pointed out, this is a pericardial decompression procedure because what happens is people keep pushing fluid in and keep pushing adrenaline in and the blood pressure will go from 55 up to 185 as the anesthesiologist or emergency physician gives that next dose of adrenaline. And that small wound in, in the right ventricle then starts spouting like a, a geezer. So you need to, once you've opened that pericardium, tell everyone just to stop and just take stock of what's going on and see how the patient responds to the anatomical decompression of the heart, which is what you're trying to perform. And so we've got that heart decompressed, we're waiting, we're seeing the response. What would be your indication for, for continuing that incision around to the right side and opening up a clamshell? Look, the clamshell thoracotomy, which is promulgated in some emergency services, is a pretty invasive procedure. And I think it's a secondary thing. You know, I don't think you need to go in there and do it as a primary procedure. So what we tend to do is we, we've opened up the chest, we put packs uh, down along the uh, lateral aspect of the chest, we pack the left lung out of the way. Usually there's blood accumulating in that pleural space and the packs will control it. Often you've gone through the uh, internal mammary arteries and you need to find them and put clips onto them uh, just to stop that bleeding because as the circulation returns, they'll start, they'll start hosing. And then you need to have a look at the heart. Occasionally you see little splits in the right ventricle, which are, are common in our population, you know, particularly with the blunt trauma patients. And that's what's caused the pericardial tamponade because we're talking about usually low-volume leaks so the patient can survive to get to hospital. Now, as you know, a lot of people have cardiac trauma at the time of high-speed accidents and it's immediately fatal. The people who survive to hospital usually have small tears, low-volume, low-pressure. Occasionally you'll see little rents in the left ventricle and occasionally you'll get atrial tears. So the 
the question is to work out where the bleeding's coming from, and then usually you can control it with your digits. Sometimes you'll have to use a Satinsky or even your fingers alone to clamp the atrium, but the important thing is then to control the bleeding. So again, don't worry about the repair, just identify the injury, control the bleeding, and give the patient time to recover. So we've got a patient, we've looked in the pericardium, we've looked at the heart, we certainly don't think there's any other injury there, and the patient remains hypotensive. You still think there's chest trauma. Would you then complete the incision across to the right side of the chest and look in the right chest, or do you think there's really no benefit added to that? So the patients where I've gone across to the right chest through the, through the sternum to have that clamshell, they're very specific patients. You know, For instance, there's a patient, a 30 odd-year-old female patient, a car reversed into her with the door open at reasonably high speed. She had a sort of central chest injury anteriorly and she came with pericardial tamponade and she was arresting. And we did exactly what we've described. And you open up the pericardium, there's a significant tamponade and you think, that's fine. And you can't identify an injury. And in fact, you have all of this deoxygenated blood welling up from below. And she had a tear of her uh, atrocaval junction. And uh, you can't fix that up from a left-sided thoracotomy. So we had to open the chest to actually put packs onto that to get her up to the operating room and see if we could repair that. Occasionally, uh, people have penetrating trauma and you know, they'll have gunshot wounds or stab wounds that also traverse the right chest. And so you need to open that to control it. Occasionally, we've done it for people with pulmonary trunk injuries where we've perhaps in the sixth interspace, we just can't get good enough visualisation. We have to go through the sternum and and the medial part of the right chest just to get enough exposure to control the uh, bleeding of that intrapericardial component of the pulmonary trunk. So that, that quite clearly spells out it's obviously patient-based and mechanism-based to move to that right chest. So in our organisation with this post-procedurally, you've already talked about the, the stop and catch up, which I think is a really important thing for people to take away after you've actually decompressed the pericardium. What other post-procedural care things, aside from getting this patient to theatre with a cardiothoracic surgeon, would you, would you suggest? Yeah, well, it's important you point that out, Mike. So we tend to do these things as a two-step procedure. Occasionally, particularly if they're penetrating injury, the the beating heart will have a primary repair downstairs in the trauma centre, but what often happens is once the bleeding control, the operating rooms are one level above, and then we take the patient up to the operating room. You know, it's just a whole different capacity to look at the patient. We can do transesophageal echo to look at the back of the heart. If there's a problem, there's bypass facilities which are rarely used but occasionally required. Sometimes with these blunt trauma patients, in fact, nearly all of them, they've got other injuries. You know, they'll need a splenectomy or, you know, they've, they've got other injuries that require attention. It's not just an isolated uh, cardiac injury, so it's better to get them up there and do it all in a uh, controlled fashion. And so by and large, really, in the emergency department, this is a temporising measure. Would there be cases for, in a more isolated setting, potentially putting sutures on the heart, stapling, those sorts of things? Yeah, so occasionally you have to control the bleeding. The right ventricle is very difficult to control bleeding from with sutures because the sutures tend to tear out, staples tend to tear out. You can use some pericardium and cut it into a pledge it and then suture through the pericardium. We do this on our live labs, as you know, Mike, and it's quite difficult. Yeah, It's quite difficult to, Absolutely. To, do, to do that. The best thing to do is suture just a pledge it. 
Uh, don't try for definitive repair, but just get some surge cell or equivalent, and just if it's a little rent in the RV, just close it if, if it's going to be a while before you can get the person to the operating room. But that's usually in cases of stab wounds, not uh, blunt trauma. Just uh, a question regarding closed chest CPR with yeah. patients, particularly traumatic arrest in a patient who we believe may actually require pericardial decompression. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Mark, and where do you think it fits in? There's limited evidence that in a shock patient, hypovolemic shock patient, a closed chest CPR improves tissue oxygen delivery. So I think this is the important part of ultrasound screening. We don't want to be uh, performing a procedure on someone with no electrical or mechanical activity. So people perhaps arrest pre-hospital, they come in with CPR from the paramedics, they may have a stab wound in the box or they've they've got significant chest trauma, you do an ultrasound and there's no cardiac activity and no electrical activity, then we stop unless the patient's arrested within a few minutes of arrival because it becomes a futile procedure. But on the other hand, if someone's losing their output, you've done an ultrasound, they've got pericardial tampener, their blood pressure's 55, you started ventilation, inevitably their venous return will reduce with ventilation, positive pressure ventilation, and then someone says, oh, we've lost an output, then... Sure, you can attempt closed chest CPR if you like, but as soon as the procedure starts, it's hands off the chest. It's going to take a minute or two to get into the chest and open the pericardium. It's pretty quick, actually, once you're trained to do it. And you can't have people in the field pressing up and down on the chest, performing an action which is essentially of no benefit. Yeah, no, I think it's a very important point. And as you say, it's really distracting from the primary procedure that's going to potentially save this person's life. Yeah, so sometimes so what happens, Mike, those, you, know, you open up the pericardium, you want to deliver the heart, and you can put your left hand, because you're on the left-hand side of the chest, in under the heart and bring the heart forward. And then sometimes it's bradycardic or the person is undervolumed, and using a clapping procedure where you have your left hand behind the heart and the heels of your gloved hands together, you can actually support or provide internal cardiac massage. And occasionally when we're doing that, we'll give the person an interventricular shot of adrenaline to stimulate cardiac activity, particularly if we think they're really shocked and they need that kick to get them uh, going. But having said that, people should respond pretty quickly to that uh, internal cardiac massage, pericardial decompression, perhaps some uh, sympathomimetic agent and volume. And we've also on our trolley got internal defib pads yep. that, um, that we can use as well. Yeah, it's important to be able to defibrillate the heart. It, it happens rarely, but sometimes you'll find hearts will fibrillate and you need to be able to, to defibrillate them. And rarely, and there's a described procedure where you basically occlude inflow to the heart to put it into ventricular fibrillation to give you a, a more stable platform to try and repair it. And then you have to defibrillate something that, that I've never used. And occasionally you can put a Bex suture equivalent into the apex of left ventricle to put the heart under some traction to give you a more uh, stable platform if you're trying to do a primary repair. And God leave that one to you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Most of these patients, look, it is, is really interesting. You know, the advent of ultrasonography has really changed the way we deal with these patients. You know, people think it's important for abdominal trauma. In fact, uh, it's really influenced thoracic trauma, in my point of view, far more significantly. Because the people with abdominal trauma, if they were shocked, we could have always done uh, aspiration or run some fluid into the peritoneal cavity and, and seen what happened. That's what we used to do. The DPL. Yeah, 
you know, we used to do diagnostic peritoneal lavage, but we couldn't do that with the chest. We couldn't see what was happening to the heart, whether it was well filled, whether it was actually functioning properly, whether there was pericardial tamponade, whether there was pneumothorax, whether there was hemothorax. And the biggest game changer for me with ultrasound has been what's happening above the diaphragm. Because even if they have got uh, hemoperitoneum, they still may end up going onto the scanner for a definitive uh, uh, diagnosis. So there's a small group of patients that are hemodynamically grossly unstable, and you can do an ultrasound, and you can see that uh, they've got hemoperitoneum, and they can have a, a laparotomy. In the old days, you would have done a laparotomy anyway, usually with these patients. But the game changer has really been what happens above the diaphragm that is the major contributor to the improved outcome from uh, cardiac injury and pericardial tamponade, that ultrasound screening. So we've covered a lot of the ground. Is there anything that, that we haven't talked about that you'd like to bring out, Mark? Well, I think it's very important to have absolute indications for procedures. The commonest reason indicated procedures isn't performed is because of lack of confidence of the operator because it's indicated and it should be performed, which is why we have this positive fast blood pressure less than 70 not coming good with IV fluids and pleural decompression because the expectation is that the pericardium will be drained. So it takes a lot of the hesitancy and prevarication out of the procedure. People have to be confident, is it an invasive procedure? And people have to be confident that uh, they're on sure ground and what they're doing is indicated. Excellent. Well, on that note, thank you very much for your time, Mark, and we'll see you at the course. Okay, thanks. Bye.